Trigger warning, this podcast contains a deep discussion about suicide and sexual abuse, which some listeners may find extremely upsetting or distressing. So please listen with caution. and welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations with me, your host, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. In previous episodes of the podcast, I've interviewed two experts on the subject of incels in the form of the brilliant Nama Cates and great friend of the pod, William Costello. I wanted to get a different, more lived experience perspective on this subject, so in this episode, I'm checking in with Matt Henry. Matt is a self-described former incel who ascended and now runs a YouTube channel where he talks about the issues within incel culture, breaks down myths and provides a nuanced perspective on this group of men which many in mainstream culture simply deride, abandon and some even label as terrorists. Matt had a very traumatic childhood which was driven by his mother who had attachment issues who alienated him from his father and she was a survivor of sex trafficking. Matt also grew up with autism and also ended up developing neurological conditions himself, including obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD, attention deficit hyperactive disorder or ADHD, and mental health issues including borderline personality disorder or BPD. Matt was also sexually abused by his high school principal and all of these life events contributed towards him becoming an incel and adopting that worldview for a period of his life. Thankfully, thanks to the role of three strong grandmothers and his own courage, his desire for self-development and his desire to develop social skills through his love of acting, Matt ascended and is now happily married with children. In this episode, we discuss that massive journey from incel to functioning member of society and father of four, how a form of therapy called dialectical behavioural therapy or DBT turned his life around as well as his faith in giving him a compass to follow towards happiness. We also discuss his YouTube channel, how we help incels ascend like he did, making sure the next generation of men and boys go on the right path, and how we avoid labelling them as inherently toxic. So this is how my check-in with Matt Henry went. Matt Henry, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you. After I listened to your interview on Friend of the Pod, Nama Cates' excellent podcast, Incel, I was really excited to get you on and share your incredible story. First off, how are you, mate? I'm doing great. I'm doing really well, actually. It was my daughter's birthday this week, so we're going to celebrate it today after I'm done this. <laughs> oh, excellent, mate. I'll try and be as quick as I can then, so I'm not keeping you from father time. You have been excellent. through a hell of a lot in your life, Matt, and you've done so well in turning your life around and doing the work you do now to help men too, and you've turned this massive negative into a positive. So without further ado and delay, are you ready to start the show? Yeah, let's get it on. Let's go back to the beginning with your podcast, Matt, and talk about your mental health journey. So I ask all my special guests this question first to begin with. 
walk me through early life, teenagers, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Matt we meet here? Okay, so early life, I would start even before the womb. So my mom was a child sex trafficking survivor. And there's a lot of evidence that shows that when you have casual sex with people, you tend to keep their DNA, especially from a woman's perspective. So that alone, dealing with those type of men who were abusing her, that had some immediate genetic effects and probably defects on me as well. I truly believe that. And that's part of my research in, into becoming a psychologist is to look into that stuff further sort of like a generational trauma. We talk about generational trauma, but we don't much talk about generational biological processes because obviously the connotation there, especially in the modern world, would be like, oh, well, if more men being with women changes the genetics of their children, well, then that's going to be seen as a negative and then people are going to go on a bandwagon. But yeah, so that's the start. Then from birth, I was already behind. Uh, from around the age, a very young age, they said I have the mental age eight years younger than myself when I was eight. But before that, they started noticing global delays and stuff. But even when I was younger, I could tell that something was off. Even as a really young child, you don't remember much, but I do remember that. I've always felt like something was not right in my brain. And as I grew older, I started getting intrusive thoughts, thoughts of harming myself, thoughts of harming others, just weird thoughts that could correlate to what I just said about the whole genetics and stuff like that. But basically what it was later, as a child, I found out I was diagnosed with ADHD with some mild autistic traits. And I also was diagnosed with OCD. I didn't get- That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't get diagnosed with BPD until later because they don't diagnose people with BPD until about the ages of adulthood, usually. Usually- older teen, it's usually yeah, young adulthood when the brain's fully developed because it's such a debilitating disorder, which I disagree with. I think the faster you can get someone diagnosed, the faster you can change them because the brain's plasticity, children are extremely plastic. Now you can teach yourself to be extremely plastic like a child, but for the most part, children are the most plastic things on earth. And what I mean by plastic, it just means that their brain is completely malleable. Because children are so narcissistic in nature, not in a bad way, but they just take everything as themselves. Mm. They take on all that. And the way that I theorize that is that is why they're so malleable because they take everything in and the brain needs to work at a rapid speed. So it's processing everything, forgetting things they don't do as much. It's called the pruning process. And so they're just basically big sponges. But yeah, so, so how would that relate to my life? Well, my mom alienated me a lot. I remember very clearly when I was younger, my mom said, listen, I was not supposed to have children. I don't know why I had you. I feel Jesus. like I'm going to fuck you up in many ways. Oh, sorry. I don't know if we can swear or not. Yeah, you can but swear. I, don't worry. Okay. okay. Yeah. I feel like I'm going to fuck you up in many ways. So just do this. Do the pros and cons in every action you do and don't listen or do anything I do. Do the opposite of what I do. Wow. Yeah, so for her to actually admit that at a very young age, that she's just going to fuck me right up and to not follow her, I took that to heart. I loved my mother. But unfortunately, another traumatic event that happened when I was a child, I found out she had leukemia. And I refused to leave the room when she was doing her treatments. So I would see her sick and literally look like she was dying every day. So then I got the idea to perform. And that's where I love. I came from my performing arts background. And I love performing. Because I made her laugh. I do stupid things. One time I threw myself off the bed on the floor, like pretended I was hurt 
made a joke about it and laughed. And I saw her laughter get the spark in her eyes. And I said, okay, if I can keep my mom laughing, I can keep her alive. And that's mm. what I did constantly. I did different voices. I did different things. That's why I'm, I'm considered now in life a very much a very like oddball, but mm. I made peace with that. Like, I really don't care what others think about me. And I've never had that caring so much about what others think about me. Momentarily, it would affect me a lot and it would cause me a lot of mental anguish. But in, in the end, I still pushed through. Yeah. So that was a major event was the death, not the death, sorry, leukemia of my mother the alienation of my mother, the big custody battle between my dad and my mom, and them constantly trying to prove what side was right. It, from my perspective, right? I don't think they did that deliberately, but I think from my perspective, it was like they wanted me to pick a side. And if I didn't pick a side, I felt like I was punished. But then as you learn psychology and stuff like that, you learn parental alienation, brainwashing, all those things like that. And that's when I realized, mm. wait, my mom had a lot to do with that because she was afraid to lose me. Because she kept saying I was a gift from God. That's why she named me Matt, because that's what it means. It means gift from God. What you said there was really interesting. I acted quite a lot in my younger days. And it's amazing how oh, many nice. artists or performers or comedians or actors have a desire to act either consciously or subconsciously from pain and to mask pain. Yeah. Would, would that be true to say for you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of my autistic stuff, especially when I was in the teenage years, because I didn't go back to acting. Well, no, I shouldn't say that because I used to just... So I used to do acting in, in my room. I would pretend to wrestle with myself. I used to love the WWF in the Attitude Era. And I'd pretend I was like Stone Cold Steve Austin. It was like, oh no, Stone Cold gave the finger. <laughs> oh, the stunner. And I would literally wrestle with myself. My mom walked in one day. And she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm wrestling with yourself. I'm like, yeah. And then there was times I'd pretend to be a Power Ranger and I'd be like, oh yeah, Power Ranger. Because I was so alienated as a child and I had a hard time making real friend connections because we would always, that was another traumatic thing too. We'd always be moving. I would move almost every year. We'd be moving. So I didn't have any friends. So I had to make these like imaginary friends, so to speak, like characters. So I guess I carried that over. And then when I got into high school, I became more social and I started masking through acting. Being big note I get a lot of the time is you've done so much work on your own that you, if you were just yourself, you'd be much more effective than if you're just whatever you're doing now, like you're trying to. Mm. And that's when I found out about autistic masking. And just going like, back to your mother quickly, I'm right in saying yeah. that in order for her to escape her kidnappers she had yeah. to either physically harm them or even kill them is that correct yes yeah, she murdered her attacker she shot him that in, is bonkers cold blood. yeah he left the gun on a nightstand he grabbed it and shot him and she helped other people escape as well you said that because of these attachment issues that she became in your words a reactionary psychopath yes and you spoke there about how she was even at least to her credit socially aware or self-aware enough to admit that she was going to fuck you up i don't know if that makes it better or worse but yeah oh, the way that took, this would she manifest took pride in her yeah. psychopath she took pride wow. in being a okay. psychopath yeah sorry go ahead i was just gonna say there would be many times where you told me that she wouldn't be able to emotionally care for you if you were crying or if you were in a difficult state either with your autism or something else so mm -hmm. why do you think she was unable to do this did that trauma that she went through which was completely bonkers just shut her off from her own emotions or did they well, warp them to a place where she had sort of no emotional intelligence whatsoever she theorized it because she was going from guy to guy a lot of the guys had step kids 
she theorized it as the stepkids needed help, but you didn't seem like you needed help to me. But she's like, yeah, you seem like you don't need help. You do things on your own. You're constantly raising yourself. I thought you were fine until at night when you would cry. You'd sit there and cry for a half hour to an hour. And you'd say, mommy, I don't want to live anymore. Or mommy, I don't want to be on this planet anymore. I don't like the way people are and things like that. Mm. She's like, and that, I don't know what to deal with that. And I think maybe it's because she also felt that way too. Like though she didn't uh, ever admit that she had, she always says, oh, I've never been suicidal. Well, that's kind of a bit of a lie because she said many times that. She would just say, oh, I just end the war. I should just go and end myself or go and do this or go and do that. And she used to do that a lot, usually when I would have a good time with my dad or usually when I would do something she disagreed with. And so what I mean by reactionary psychopath is she experiences a reaction and tends to act usually in a psychopathic manner. So that means self-centered, all about her, in an extreme manner. And it could be anything as simple as you don't want to talk to her for a period or you leave the room too early. So a lot of my childhood was picking up behavioral cues from her so mm. as to not sort of piss off the dragon, so to speak. How did your relationship with your mother affect the way that you adopted incel ideology or became one in the literal definition? Well, most people would have figured that, well, okay, so this guy had a rough childhood with his mother, then he would hate his mother and thus women. Well, a lot of the time, especially when I got into high school and she abandoned me for drugs because she became addicted to drugs again. So a lot of the time, yeah, I would hate my mother. I would have resentment, content, all that stuff. But I didn't hate women and I didn't hate women because I had three amazing grandmothers who honestly were my lifesavers when I was a child. My stepmother, too, to some extent. And also my mom. Like, I know I bash my mom a lot, but I view my mom as two different persons. She had a diagnosis of dissociative identity disorder. So I view my mother as two separate entities. There's the dark side of a mother and there's a, a light side mm. of my mother. Well, that's pretty rare, a dissociative identity disorder. I mean, you've got all the kids who are claiming oh, yeah. that they've got it on TikTok now. But before oh. that, it was in the hundreds throughout history who had been diagnosed it is so it. it's so rare and the reason why it's so rare is because basically you need to be through a lot of the studies show you have to be through a ton of trauma like a ton so sex trafficking survivors i would argue there'd be a high correlation there one of my goals is to work with uh, sex trafficking survivors not just work with them but to help them live more meaningful peaceful and fulfilling lives and not just child traffics that i have a very soft spot for those people but yeah no you need to be through such extreme trauma that the only way for your body to cope is to dissociate and i've met a few mm. people because it seems to be that people who are mentally ill tend to tr naturally attract people who are mentally ill not in a negative way but it's just because of that relating and and all that yeah. stuff right but yeah i know you need to have extreme amounts of trauma ex extreme extreme because basically what you're doing is you're dissociating but you're not just dissociating you're dissociating by creating a whole entire different personality but that mm. personality is meant to cope in certain situations so basically you go through life and you have these these flips and these switches now when i was younger i think my mom maybe had more like I remember there was a medicated mom. So whenever my mom would experience like some really harsh news, she'd go and she'd pop half a bottle of Tylenol, sit there and rock and listen to Shania Twain or 
Celine Dion. And then there was a, a regressive mother that was just constantly angry. And you, you can't break them out of these states. They have to come out of it on their own. You lost two of your grandmothers during this period of, say, high school to college years. And you said that when this happened that you lost your compass. What did you mean by that? Well, like I said, they were my saving grace. They really helped me through life. They helped me understand why I thought the way I did, why I got, you know, the action urges the way that I did. They helped me find, even though I experienced a lot of religious abuse because of how I thought and how I would be so open to talk about things and oversharing, which is a, a, a BPD trait as well. You overshare too much, but they would help me guide those things and they would help inspire me and, and give me a hope for life. Really. They would really make me feel that life is worth living. My grandmother, my mamere always said, there's something about you. There's a lightness about you. There's like some radiant energy about you. That is just pure light. And I'm like, well, what the heck does that mean? <laughs> like, you know, try to decipher that. But I think she just meant you have a good heart. You're very high in empathy. You're very high in understanding, even the darker sides of, of personality. You're very Christ-like individual. Like she's like, you have a very Christ-like personality. And out of all the grandkids, apparently she took a real liking to me and and helping me. And I don't know if that's because she knew how my mother was or what have you. There's a whole long story. Apparently she wasn't the woman. My mom says she wasn't the woman who she became, but I don't know. That's a, a long story. But that's what I mean by compass is they help guide me. And then when I lost them, I felt like my compasses were not there. And before that, when I was a child, when I was 12, I lost another close grandmother. She died due to a medical accident. So that was essentially to me like losing three mother figures. Mm. One incident which seems to have affected you profoundly, and we're going to talk about your journey from Minseldom to Ascension in a second, Matt, was when you were sexually abused or molested by a educational figure in your school. Yeah. I'm not going to ask you to relive the event because I'm a survivor myself and I know how difficult that is. But what yeah. impact did it have on your mental health? Did it affect your ability to form relationships not just romantic but other relationships and did it perhaps foreshadow that descent into inseldom as well this is going to sound crazy but it had the reverse effect so when it happened to me i didn't think oh i'm a horrible person or or shame i didn't feel shame or anything like that until after i talked to others what i said to myself was what would i have to experience in life for me to think that it's okay to do this to someone else and that created my empathy compass. So without having that event in my life, I don't think I would have the empathy for that side of personality. And it's also my spiritual belief now. So back in the time, I did feel shame when I told my parents because they're like, oh my God, that's a piece of shit. He's a monster and all that stuff. But when you tell people that, when you tell a child that, a child's going to think they're the monster because it happened to them. So therefore, in their mind, they're thinking, if it happened to me, I'm a monster. They don't have the ability to disconnect people from people. They think everything is about them. So whether it's it's someone doing something to them or them doing something to someone else, everything is about them. So the minute I told someone, they were sympathetic in it, but then I overheard conversations about them killing them and all that stuff. And my mom was raging. And that's when I felt like I'm a monster. And that's actually when I started to get those, those thoughts. 
Now, I'm not trying to discredit the abuse. Obviously, it did have a, a profound impact on me. It opened me up sexually to a very young age. I experiment when I was a kid, I experimented with other kids, and then I realized that was wrong. I was open to my grandmothers about it. They also helped me with that. And they said it's normal for a kid to do that when that is open, but that's something that adults do. And because I had OCD, I think I was lucky in a sense because the way that intrusive OCD works is normal people don't do certain things, right? Like the brain will be like, oh, don't take the knife and stab someone or make sure you're careful not to hurt somebody who's beside you. OCD brain is in reverse. OCD brain, and this is how I reversed my OCD, an OCD brain does not feel in control. Like the brain itself does not feel like their host is in control. So there is evidence that shows that the brain is essentially a separate entity from ourselves as well as a part of ourselves, right? Because there's a whole touting of you're not your thoughts. You know, your emotions can sometimes not be a representative of, of who you are, your reality, stuff like that. So the way that I theorized it when I was learning about OCD was that in order for me to get control of my OCD, I have to reverse the thoughts like a normal brain. But because my brain doesn't trust myself, I'd have to treat it like a child, like a parent. So I would tell my brain, I'd say, oh, thank you, OCD, for letting me know not to harm somebody. I really appreciate it when you look out for me. I, I really love you. I respect you. Keep doing that. And eventually what happened when I would do that, which is basically the last step of exposure therapy, you expose yourself so much that your brain no longer fears something. The last time that I did that, eventually the thoughts went away. And now mm. it, it only happens when I feel insecure in my philosophies, then my OCD. And I'll be like, no, no, no. Thank you, OCD. I'm still in control. I just having a moment. <laughs> and that's what I noticed when you beat your brain up, like I did as a child all the time, when you're constantly beating your brain up, your brain's going to feed that back to you. When you love your brain, your brain's going to be your biggest coach. So when you have a negative thought, because I believe that you yourself affects the brain, but the brain also affects you. Because if they're two separate entities, it's like a big relationship, right? I know it might sound crazy, but there is evidence to suggest these, these things. So when you talk negatively to your brain, well, your brain's going to talk negatively to you. It'd be like if I talk negatively to someone else in, in person, I'm going to create conflict. But if you're constantly praising your brain, when you try to have one little negative thought, your brain becomes your biggest coach. Like, no, 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 we're not doing that. Or if I would go and do something I don't want to do, it's like, hey, no, we're not doing that, man. We're going to stick to the plan. Let's do this. And that's the thoughts I would get. When I spoke to Nama about this in her episode, she yeah. told me that many incels and many former incels have been survivors or victim survivors of sexual abuse. Yeah. Do you think if more people knew that, there would be more empathy for the plight of incels, if not perhaps their views towards women? There'd be more understanding as to why they're so sex obsessed. Because I didn't even know. So you just brought something up I didn't even know. So I'm going to look into... I had no idea that a lot of them were survivors of sexual abuse, but it would make sense because abusers tend to find people who are the most either marginalized or either like held back in society. And many of those guys, as I mentioned in Nama's podcast, have what I call ecological system failure. So a failure in the medical, the health and the well-being to help them. So it would make sense. And then I also know from sexual abuse yourself, it opens you up very early sexually and you become mm. almost sex obsessed 
or asexual <laughs> okay it's like or asexual weird, yes yeah, yeah it's like between uh, two different things yeah yeah and i've noticed i have experienced that myself too where i'd had moments of asexuality and then moments of hyper sexuality yes, yeah it's very weird to experience that yeah and i it's think if weird. we to- if we showed society that they would be like okay well that makes sense and if they're heterosexual it would make sense that their fixation would be on women and if they're not getting that met well we know studies that show that if you don't get well, your food needs met all you can think about is food now we're in a society that refuses to accept the fact that sex is a basic need but it is and the reason why i think we're like that is because when you look at sex it's a combining of two consenting individuals so how do you get a need met when someone's not consenting right when no one's going to consent to you how do you get that need met and then my idea just goes well you just go into sex robots or you go into other ways to get those needs those needs fulfilled i know it sounds crazy but i truly believe if they had some sort of outlet or if they could somehow fabricate a woman that would love them for them then a lot of their issues would go away so i'm not doing like what jordan peterson does dr jordan peterson it says we should have forced monogamy or some type of monogamy between yeah no 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 what i'm saying is we should create some sort of outlet for these individuals whether it's a creating some form of mechanical entity or whether it's really getting to the the why these people have these issues and helping them ascend because i'm not the only person that's ascended many people ascend right it seems mm-hmm. like it's almost a lot of times within seldom, and this could relate to with sexual abuse, is that sometimes on top of the asexuality, this could relate because you're stunted, right? Yes. When you when you're asexual, then you're you're technically stunted sexually. When you're hypersexual, you're technically overly stimulated. Let's talk about that ascension now. And your yeah, move okay. from inceldom into ascension. And the phrase we use is ascension because it's it's almost biblical in its references, actually, in its implication and connotations. <laughs> but just tell me what triggered the journey and how you were able to leave that mindset you were in for quite a few years. What triggered it was in order for me to ascend, I'd have to get a handle on my mental health issues. I'd have to figure out why... I am the way I am because I was a true mental self. Because when Which is what Jordan of... Peterson says, by the way, listeners, and he gets pilloried for a lot of his stuff. <laughs> because when you're, so when you're uh, the way that I am, you're constantly thinking of harming individuals or yourself in either sexual or non-sexual ways. It's really hard to have a, a relationship. Like most people, they'll go, they'll see someone they're attracted to and they'll go, hey, I really like that person. I like the way they look. She's cute or he's cute. I want to get to know them. How can I get to know them? Well, OCD people who have what's considered grape OCD. I don't know if you can use that word or not, but they... Puro is also the kind of maybe psychological term. That's yeah, used. puro Puro's is... Maybe, well, yeah, it's, yeah. it's actually not considered a psychological term anymore because people are started going overboard with it. Oh, but really? Yeah, so, oh, okay. yeah, they call it intrusive type now. But yeah, but right. puro is purely obsessional. So those type of people, if they have that, the grape one, if they have that, they'll think, oh, that person's cute. I'm going to go and I'm going to, you know, what them. And that's very traumatizing, right? Because Mm -hmm. if you look at what I just said about the brain, then you look at on OCD, then you see that, oh, they're just trying to make me afraid because they don't trust that I can consensually have a romantic relationship with another person. And that could also Mm -hmm. relate on maybe a, a spiritual level or even 
a genetic level, all the genetical stuff that I experienced from my mom being a child sex trafficking survivor. It's almost as if I was guided in some higher power. I know it sounds crazy to some people, but it is almost as if there are many areas in my life where I was protected and guided in my life. And my mayor even said, well, I did pray for you for some guidance like that and some sheltering and which relates to the compass thing. So I had to get a handle on those things, which means I had to learn what those things were, which means I had to go into the mental health sector and deal with psychologists and counselors and be very comfortable opening up about things that if you would tell most people, they would think you're the worst of the worst and they would try to ostracize you and, and think, no, no, you're secretly, you know, for example, for people with the POCD, a lot of them, they get shamed because they're like, no, you're secretly a pedophile. That's what it was. And in the beginning, that's what psychologists thought. They're like, oh, no, you're a pedophile. And then they're like, no, 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 they're not. They're afraid of it. And they don't want anything to do with it. And, oh, yeah, they've also been hurt that way. So that's when they said, no, 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 that's intrusive OCD. That's mm. the brain not fully trusting its host mm. or fearing so much that it, it doesn't trust its host kind of thing. So that's how I ascended. I ascended by slowly working on my mental health issues, slowly moving from focusing solely on art because that's how I coped with most of my life. I completely put my myself into performing arts, creating performing arts, directing, acting, everything. I was doing set designs. I was doing lighting designs. I was writing shows, directing shows. And I slowly took that focus off. And I regret that. I truly do. I wish I would have waited. Even though I it was 23 when I ascended, I wish I would have waited because I was more in love with doing art and stuff than I was trying to chase another person in some form of sexual conquest because most of my guy friends who were the popular guys kept pushing me and shaming me too. And they're like, no, no, dude, you got to lose your virginity. You can't be a pussy. Real men have sex. Real men fuck hard. Real men do this and all that. And I'm just looking at them like, uh, maybe real men just sit in a room and make theater all day. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Maybe that, but I eventually, I felt like I would lose those relationships if I didn't do the traditional thing. So then I started pursuing and I shouldn't say that there was times that I actually did want a meaningful connection with a woman. But when you're BPD, you're kind of hard on having secure attachment. So you tend to screw things up. And a lot of feedback I got from women is, oh my God, when you first start dating, you're an amazing guy. As we continue to date and you get closer and closer, you become this psycho between I don't want you and oh my God, don't leave me. I'll do anything for you. Yeah, there's a book. I read a book on that. I hate you, don't leave me. It's classic BPD, yes. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's almost like a Bible on disorganized attachment. I think mm. BPD is the disorder that relates well to that. But yeah, so I had to get a handle on all that stuff. You know, I had to become secure attached so make peace with losing everything. I truly believe when it comes to personality disorders, when it comes to mental health disorders, there's an underlying issue or through line, I call it, that every symptom and aspect of the disorder relates to. And if you solve that underlining through line in your belief system, you reverse the disorder. And that's mm. been my experience. Before we go in depth about that therapy you mentioned, mate, because I really yeah. want to highlight this, is it, it sounds transformation on you, as a lot of therapy was for me. <laughs> a key yeah. quote I wrote down during this discussion about Ascension Off Air was you, you said, I have to be the source of my needs. So was that you realizing full 
self-responsibility and ownership and coming out of victimhood perhaps yes it was it was realizing that i have to come from a stance even though it might not be true that everything in this life that i experience i have on some higher conscious level maybe even before coming here i have chosen to experience it is a part of my journey to help me learn grow and evolve and also do my purpose. And for me, that's been true. And when I tried to test that by looking at other people who've been either highly successful in completely transforming themselves or who have been just highly successful in their careers, they took the things that they were afraid of the most, struggled the most, or had the most pain with, and they ran with it. And they overcame it. And they made that their mission. And then they helped others do the same. Great examples in this is Oprah Winfrey was, is a good one. She was through a lot. Pretty much anybody who was successful in life. Eminem was a good one. He was actually mm. a great therapeutic inspiration for me, ironically, because of his views towards his mother. Yeah, um, I was going to say, that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but when you look at that, that becomes true mm. in many regards. And sadly, from my experience in my life and others' lives and even my mom's life, those who have the reverse effect saying everything that happens to me is not my fault or someone else or I'm a victim suffer greatly. And that was my experience all the way until I started getting a handle on these things. I suffered mm. greatly. I can't honestly, Freddie, I can't remember a day past that I had cognition in my mind. So I'd say about maybe five where I didn't think of ending my life. There was not one day where the, one of those thoughts came to my mind. Now, some of that could be part of the suicidal OCD, but a lot of it was because of how I was experiencing things. Hmm. So, Thankfully, you didn't do that, mate. And you found yes, a thankfully. form of therapy I, in yes. 2016 called Dialectical behavioral therapy yes. or dbt so why was this such a big moment for you and how did that therapy help your mental health and allow you to ascend i recommend everybody go to dialectical behavior therapy it is probably the best form of therapy possible because number one it was created by someone who had bpd so it was created by someone who had a ton of mental health issues usually bpd spans the gamut it's almost like a amalgamation of all the disorders there's a little bit of dissociation. There's a little bit of schizophrenic. There's a little bit of narcissism, all those things. It's really the doorway to all the disorders. And so she created this therapy where basically, I think what she said was, what if I combine cognitive behavior therapy styles with one-on-one -on -one therapeutic sessions? And the focus is to get the individual to do the work. So the individual gets the knowledge, they do the work, and they're monitored by a, a psychologist or a therapist or what have you. And that to me was groundbreaking. And I think that to me is what men would love in therapy. Men don't really want to be fully empathized. They want to be heard. They want to be validated. But after that, they want the tools they need. Yes. To get we want help actions and, to, to use yes, and do after to it. To get yeah. help and to get out. And that's yes. why I always tell people I work with, 
you know, self-help coach or people I've, I talk to on streams, I always say the core sign of a mental health practitioner that knows what they're doing is they have a plan to get you out of their office and you'll never see them again. If your mental health practitioner has a plan to get you out of the office, you'll never see them again. You stick with that mental health practitioner because that's rare. Most of them that I went through and I went through quite a bit touted the whole cognitive behavior therapy, do your thought records, do your event records, but there's more to it than that. And dialectical behavior therapy actually gives you the steps. The step to any change is you first, you think it. So you change your thoughts. Second, you change your belief systems. So you think you be, and then you do, right? So you Mm -hmm. do the work. Once you have your belief systems, you do the work and then you have, and you have to be consistent because if you're not consistent, when life throws shit at you or when the disorder says, no, you're a liar because the brain, as much as it likes to change, it also likes to maintain a homeostasis. So a balance, it also likes to continue being itself that it was before. So you are going to get backlash from your brain. So when I did try to overcome OCD, my brain would call me a liar, be like, no, no, no. But once you push through that backlash, then you'll start to see the change. And it is just the universe. It's the universal law of homeostasis is that our bodies and our brains are always trying to maintain a balance of some kind. And if we don't balance it for you, it's going to balance itself. And a great example of that, if you look at any addiction, what happens to the addict? If they don't get help, they become the essence of addiction themselves. The same is true for mental health. If you don't get help, you become the essence of the mental health disorder you have yourself. Before we reflect on your mental health journey, Matt, Mm -hmm. there was a very big moment. And this comes back to what we talked about with faith, where you pray to God and you credit it as one which helped you metaphorically ascend out of inceldom. So what did you say and did, I don't want to to misgender God, but did he or she (laughs) respond? In my view, God doesn't have a gender. It's just the essence of creativity itself, which is everything on the planet and that we're all connected to that essence in some way as a universal conscious. That's my view on it. But anyway, I looked up to God and I said, God, please give me the answers to get over this. And if you do, I promise I will give back and I'll give back tenfold and I will do everything it takes to help people in the areas that I suffer in. And that's what I said. I said, give me the answers. Like, I don't know why I was suffering before that. Every night I would cry to God and I'd say, I don't know why me, why am I suffering? Why, why is that? And that's when I started getting the answers. I started getting into alternative spirituality books. I started getting into that talk about we are all one. We all come from the same source. What we do to one, we do to another. I started getting into books like Neil Donald Walsh, Don Miguel Ruiz, things like that. Things that actually healed my religious abuse and then made me go back to the Christ mindset and say, wait, he touted the same thing. It's not Christ's message that is flawed, in my opinion. It's the books and the rulings and all the stuff around it that was transcribed by people. And if you look at where the modern Bible originally comes from, it comes from a period of time when after they had King's Days, where they basically... The people were working so much, they refused to work. So they had these days of debauchery and doing all the things you could possibly do. After they had those days, the courts hired religion or what have you. They came in and they preached Christ, the Bible and all that. And they threw people who disagreed into the sewers and stuff like that. 
that was one of the reasons for inventing like the modern day soap was to cleanse the body of the of your sins. But yeah, so that's what I said. I said, if I had to experience that in my life, like what would I have? I don't know. Sorry. Yeah. With God, it was, yeah, no, give me the tools and I will give back. And mm-hmm. again, that's another trait you see of successful people. They get the tools, then they give back. Let's reflect on your mental health journey now, Matt. So yeah. I'm sure when you were in the depths of inceldom, ascension seemed like a completely alien and probably impossible objective. Oh, absolutely. So oh, now yeah. you have ascended. You are the father yes. of four wonderful children. Yes. When it initially happened, was it everything you hoped it would be? Or did it feel quite I, gradual and normal? No. Even though I ascended, I didn't cure the OCD themes relating to children. I was petrified of being a dad. I always wanted to be a dad. I always wanted to be an educator, especially with children. I find children to be fascinating and to be the closest form of what I would consider a divine being to be because they're just doing whatever they want and they're creating and they're learning. And when you teach a child properly not to harm another child, they go, hey, I don't harm that that guy. He's a cool guy. Why would I want to harm him? So, And they're just so innocent and like really present in life. One of the, th- the things in acting they say is if you put a, a dog or child on stage, it'll beat any actor you could possibly think of because of how present and aware animals and dogs are in life. But yeah, going back to the question, yeah, was it everything I hoped I would be? Now, when I finally got over those themes and overcame my illnesses, it's more than I thought it would be. It's honestly one of the reasons why I wake up every morning and sometimes it's it's, it's tiring and it's stressful because I got four. Some days I was like, maybe I should have just stuck to one or two. <laughs> Which one of you want to go on the uh, the journey? What was it? What's there with the conch? Who wants to sit in and try? But you guys got conches. Which one's gone? <laughs> but yeah, no, it's more than what I thought it would be. Yeah. And as a final question, A, what has it taught you about yourself? And B, if you could go back and talk to the Matt who was struggling to make friends or develop social skills because of his autism, the Matt who was dealing with being sexually abused by that authority figure, or the Matt who was grieving for his grandmothers and trying to rediscover his compass, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? I would say anything is only temporary. And everything, even if it's something you feel is horrible in the moment, in the end, has a positive if you choose to allow the positive to be shown to you. If you don't choose to allow the positive to be shown to you and you feel like that's the worst thing you've ever had in your life, you will experience misery like no tomorrow. So it's better to always come with this idea of hope and optimism and this idea of a second thing, don't take anything personally, right? Everything someone does to you is not a reflection of you. It's a reflection of what you've triggered within them based on their past experiences, their past perceptions of what you did to trigger their behavior. Those would be some things I'd say. So what was the first question? The first one was, what has it taught you about yourself? What it's taught me about myself is a lot of it is a lot that when you come at things, even people you disagree with from a place of understanding, empathy, even a little bit of compassion, And wanting to understand more to help them, but also to help those they have harmed or those they disagree with, you get a more, I 
it's hard to explain the feeling, but it's a feeling of oneness. And you understand life a little bit more. And you're able to predict people's behaviors more, not take it as personally. And thus you're able to move quicker through pain, suffering, trauma. If that makes sense. A lot of people have a hard time. It's almost like I call them cardinal sins, dealing with people who hurt children, people who murder people, people who, you know, great people. A lot of people have a hard time empathizing with those people. But I truly believe that hurt people hurt people. And those people are deeply hurting. Because chances are, if they're hurting people like that, they're also beating themselves up for doing that. Because I've noticed, and this is something I would say to my younger self, and also to answer the first question, I noticed that there's two things the brain cannot comprehend without extreme justification. The first is for harming another, and the second is for harming the self. The justification for harming another is this idea that they deserve it somehow. The justification for harming the self is the idea that you deserve it. You deserve to harm yourself. So that's what all my life experiences have taught me is that the more I move through empathy, the more I move through understanding, the more I move, even when I'm criticized for doing that, especially when trying to help the what I consider the darker side of personality based on what society considers as a darker side of personality, the more that I do that and, and get backlash, the more that I keep doing it from an empathetic perspective while listening to their criticisms and changing a little bit of how I word things or communicate things, the better I end up. We've talked all about your mental health journey and how you ascended, Matt. After ascending, yep. you now try and help these men who haven't ascended yet through the work you do on your YouTube channel, Fixing Inceldom. Now, it used yeah. to be called something else, which made life a bit more difficult for you in breaking through <laughs> to normies. So just tell yeah. me first about why you made the name change and tell my listeners about the work you do through this channel to help other incels hopefully ascend like you did. Yeah, so I had to change the name again. So it's how to help incels now because incels okay. were pissed. <laughs> incels got pissed that I said fixing. I don't need fixing. What are you talking about? You mean oh, fixing. Wow. Okay. How dare you? That's insulting. Before that, I was called black pill medicine. And they had issues with that because it's like, what do you mean black pill medicine? The black pill is the truth. It's the law. It's laying the smack down. Sound like Judge Dredd. <laughs> yeah, no, that's well, that's what they're saying. So I was like, okay, well, I was just trying to like, the whole point of the channel is how do we help these men to live more peacefully in the life they have now to help strive to a better life in the future or to just make peace with the life they have now? That's all it is, is what are the strategies? What can we do? What are the things that either they think about doing? Let's, hey, let's discuss it. Let's get into research of it. Even if it's taboo, even if it's like, oh, that's kind of really controlling and really like slavery towards women. Well, let's have a discussion. Let's show them why that is. So maybe then they'll change their perspective. Because when all you're thinking about is the end goal, sex, you're not going to look at another person as another person. You're just going to mm. see them a means to an end. So you're actually, mm. yeah, you are going to see them as an object. And many times they do. They see them as an object of whether to be desired, criticized, or even shamed, which is sad. Mm. So my goal for that channel, it's it's fairly new. I have about 166 subscribers. I've been on and off for the last few years. Since coming back, I gained over 100 subscribers in less than a month or less than two months. So it's growing, but it, that's what it is. It's basically strategies, tips, tricks, everything, how to help incels. And of course, 
by doing that, because they have a myriad of mental health disorders, they run the gamut through any possible mental health disorder. It's also going to help other people as well. So that's why when I title my videos, a lot of them, I title them relating to a mass audience. So when I talk yes. about manipulation, the title is how people manipulate you. But the thumbnail is like, here's how to make sure Stacy never hooks you or something, something mm -hmm. that they can resonate with. So yeah, that's what the channel is. I feel like how to help incels is pretty straightforward. I think people will understand what I'm trying to do, but I hate the title because it's not creative. I'm a creative person. <laughs> so I came up with black. Yeah, to medicine. limit yourself there. Like, <laughs> yeah. And then I came up with wall fix fixing inceldom. Oh, I'll make my future treatment program in psychology. I'll make that incel exit or exit the black pill. I'm like, no, you can't have anything that disagrees with them. And I should have mm. known this because when you're first learning therapeutic techniques, you first have, have to learn to come at the angle that the person is telling you. You have to trust what they're telling you is their reality, their experiences, so that you can validate them, you can empathize with them, you can see how you understand where they're coming from. And then you can say, hey, but have you considered this option? Have you considered that option? And that's what I want to try and switch. And I think that's where I was having a hard time with is because I'd always just tell them what I learned. I didn't show them that I resonate with their journey, that I know mm. what it's like to be alone, that I know what it's like to be rejected constantly, that I know what it's like to feel like an outcast and not just feel like an outcast, but to be humiliated, to be bullied, to be treated like an, an object to be discarded, really, to be an outlet to basically be a punching bag and then used. I know what that's like. A lot of the mainstream discourse yeah. about incels paints <clears throat> all of them, not just some of them, all of them as A, misogynistic, yeah. and B, as potentially violent and quote-unquote school shooters in waiting, especially in the US. Some courses even wish to label them as terrorists or want to label them as terrorists. So yeah, what is the truth? Because William Costello, my friend who's come on the pod to talk about this, paints a different and nuanced picture about the people who are in incel communities who hold misogynistic views or potentially misogynistic views and those who are likely to commit violence. What is the truth here? Tell my listeners the reality of it. The truth here and what I truly feel and I'm going to prove with my research in psychology as being a psychology student like William is uh, <clears throat> a lot of incels have what I call ecological system failure. So that's a fancy term just to say that society plays a huge role on how we end up, how we're conditioned. Right now, society touts LGBTQ women and other minority groups as the gold standard in terms of people to help people to empathize, people to sympathize with. And they tout inseldom as the opposite. They tout inseldom and certain men and manosphere groups and men helping men and men's right activists, they label all those individuals as the opposite of what society should subscribe to. So then men get this idea of like, well, if I want women and women are telling me this, I need to be on the side of yay women. I need to be on the side of, yes, let's do this. Let's help the minorities. Let's all go. There's in, also in an incel regard. pipeline to trans, which is also quite dark if you go down that rabbit <clears throat> hole yep. too. Yep. Well, I already was uh, transparent, no pun intended, but I already told them that I found transgender people sexually attractive because I have a weird fascination with penises due to my sexual abuse. And that could be something I get a lot of, of flack for. But I also do believe from a bare bones level that there is such thing as, as transgender people, that a man can truly feel like a woman in a woman's body. 
now to the level of degree that people are saying they are, well, that's different. But to go back mm. to that, it's almost like they're not just lashing out at these people. These people think they're lashing out only at them. They're lashing out at the systems. They're lashing out at the government for failing them. They're lashing mm. out at the healthcare system for failing them, the educational industry for failing them. That's why they have a lot of correlation with conspiracy theories and these yes. ideas that it's a gynocentric society. It's a, you know, we're constantly being manipulated or the government's out to get you all these things. So when you look at it as a whole, it makes sense that people are beat down by society that are trying to tout the opposite. If you look at it from a parental role, because a lot of these people don't have parental figures. So they view these institutions as sort of a parental role, kind of like a, a leader, so to speak. If you look at it from that role, the golden child are the women, the trans, the LGBTQ, the minorities, the black sheep is the incels. And so it only makes sense that they're going to fight and kick and scream with those individuals. And then when you combine the fact that these individuals are hypersexually focused, hypersexualized focused, they're focused on sex so much. I have many theories why that might be. And that they only view sex as the end goal. Well, then it makes sense that they're going to come across as misogynistic. It's going to make sense that they view women as something that is less than or something to be attained. Those things make sense. But how society is saying that they are the way they are does not make sense because society refuses, vehemently refuses, and I'm getting passionate here. That's why my voice is rising. <laughs> but they vehemently refuses to take ownership for the failures in itself. They refuse mm. to take ownership in the fact that a lot of the reasons why we have people that harm children is because we don't have great care for people that harm children. The care that we have for people who harm children, oh, you're like that? Okay, I'm going to call the police. I have to notify the police. I have to notify these people. I have to notify everyone you were in contact with. I have to breach all these confidentialities that other people have. Oh, but you didn't do anything yet? Doesn't matter. I still have to do those things. You're no different than someone who has harmed a child, and I disagree with that. If you look at the clinical definition of those two things, those two things are very different. One is you have sexual attraction to children, and a lot of that usually relates to sexual abuse. Another is you act on it, and it's the acting on it is the problem. And you mm -hmm. can do what I call directly or indirectly acting on it. So indirectly would be viewing child porn. Directly would be directly harming a child. Both are very bad, mm. and both should be held to law and due process and all that stuff. Mm. But society itself can't blame the people that are harming it when society is the one that's doing all the harming. You know what I mean? It's kind of like the idea that when society keeps kicking the things they view as lesser than or dogs, animals, those animals are going to bite back. It's just world nature. It's nature in animals. You hit an animal enough, it will hit you back. It's nature in mm. humans. You hit a human enough, you beat down a human enough, they will hit back. The problem is with humans is we have the ability to think, we have the ability to plan, we have the ability to strategize, we have the creativeness, we have all the things that make for mass tragedies, very sad mass tragedies that we have. And not just mm. this group, but in other groups that are labeled terrorisms. So I do understand where society is coming from. Because on the surface, yeah, they seem correct. But just like anything else, when you dive deeper, it's incorrect. It's so far removed from what it really is. There are very few individuals who do the things that society is afraid of 
aside from maybe the misogynistic part, which I covered earlier, there are very few people who do the things that they're truly afraid of in all those groups, but those groups are labeled fully Mm -hmm. like that. And I think that is where we're going wrong, truly wrong in society. There's a couple of examples that people point to of these fighting back. One is in the US, which is Elliot Roger. And the most prominent in the UK is Jake Davison. And I've spoken with Nama about why a lot of the media reporting around Jake Davison was actually kind of false and misleading. Mm. But when it comes to the former, because I I presume you'll be more knowledgeable about that, just tell the listeners about Elliot Roger and the events that led up to him doing what he did and his psychological mindset at the time. So how much of it was to do with a complete hatred of women? How much of it was it to do with a, a narcissistic personality disorder or something else entirely? I think so. I think it was both in some regards. Mm -hmm. So here's what I think. If you look at his manifesto, he's very clear on why he is the way he is. It started in childhood. They moved him around all over the place. And then he related that when he was writing his manifesto. Oh, yeah, there was that time my mom said that birth control failed and they had me. You know how traumatic that is, regardless of what age you are, to find out that you were the product of a failed birth control? You weren't wanted, man. You weren't wanted whatsoever. So you obviously going to have resentment similar to like I had resentment and hatred towards my mother. The difference between me and, and Roger is Roger never had any positive female role models that he had throughout his life. He never had any female compass to say, no, this is what, you know, he never had that opposite end. He only saw what he saw of women, which was women were manipulative, women were secretly evil and but at the same time he wanted a woman so it is almost like he knew that there was more to life than what he is seeing in terms of women but he couldn't get past that and so my view on on elliot roger if we look at a through line of his whole entire life is everywhere he tried to get his needs met especially as a kid he couldn't get his needs met not only and sometimes could he not get his needs met but he experienced abuse he experienced manipulation he experienced being taken advantage of To the point where he realized, well, I have to be the source of my needs. And if you look at narcissistic personality disorder or narcissism in general, the crux of that disorder comes from the fact that everywhere they tried to go, they tried to get their needs met. They couldn't get their needs met. So they had to create this idea that they were the center of the universe so that they can get their needs met. And if ever they disagreed or what have you, Sorry, my kids came downstairs. That's all right. That's ever... fine. It, it, it's coming through on the audio, but it's fine, mate. Don't worry about it. Just ca- carry okay. on. <laughs> but yeah, if ever they disagreed with stuff like that, they would have to try and destroy them because they're destroying their reality. They're, what, I think it's called a, is it a narcissistic veil? Yeah, or Something a narcissistic like wound. Yeah. It's a narcissistic wound. To me, I look at it more of narcissistic realization that in your life right now, only you can get your needs met. And that's very traumatic for a child to have. So that's how I look at Roger. And if you look at the, the Plymouth shooter, the I, for, I forget his name. Yeah, Jake Davidson. Jake yeah. Davidson. Very yeah. similar. Very similar. He grew up. He did experience some abuse. Apparently his mom was abusive too and stuff like that. Yeah, she uh, was the first person he killed. Yeah. Yeah. So that resentment is going to build in you and then you're going to need an outlet to let that out because eventually you, you can't just keep all that in. It's like anger. It's like a pot boiling it's gonna explode and then that's what happens you go out and you do and it's really really fascinating too because when you see these events and and another good example although i think they discredited him 
was the van attack Alex Manaski, and they discredited him as being incel. Apparently, he just used that as excuse to do what he did. But when you look yeah, at their just tragedies, a massive racist. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you look at their tragedies that they commit, it seems to be more men getting hurt than women. Like Elliot Roger, I think. Oh, I think yeah, that was equal. But I think it was more men. The van attack was more men, or it's people that they didn't even were complaining about. So it's again, it's a lot. It's an unleashing and lashing yeah. out of society in general. Yeah, Jake Davidson killed children, and I think he killed yeah an adult, like a father and child. So I think people who say that was purely an incel shooting, and I would think, yeah. well, yes, it was a disturbed person who was clearly on a horrific rampage, but how much of it was linked to incel and a, and a hatred of women, I'm not too sure. So that's why the, I think the reporting was yeah. quite... If you want to listen, go back to Nama's episode where she talks a lot more about that. I want to quickly talk about how we counter the black pill, Matt, because what I think I find quite frustrating, and I've talked quite a lot about this on social media and my own experiences with dating, <laughs> is that on dating apps, I think the black pill is fueled by them in essence because you are literally judging people based on looks and a picture Mm -hmm. so would you say that the rise of dating apps has strengthened the branches of the black pill and if it has how do we counter it i think if you're going to use dating apps then yes it's looks based until they create a dating app that's sort of like a speed date design i I created one just for fun like a designed one that is based on speed dating so you have the picture first, but it's, you don't have picture. You have TikTok videos or what have you. We can get into that in another video. But mainly, yes, it is based on looks. Now, you can go and you can find people who aren't on dating apps. A lot of women aren't on dating apps. A lot of men are. 75%, I think, of men are on it's, dating it's apps. It's 90% in the UK for Tinder, mate, who are men. <laughs> yeah. So, so to I should sit laugh, there and say, that's fucked. <laughs> to sit there and say all women care about looks now is just inaccurate you could say 10 percent of women the 10 percent of women that are on dating apps you bet your ass because of the way that uh, operant conditioning works you bet and your the ass algorithm and how it fucks up your head yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. you bet your ass that those people are most likely conditioned to value looks over everything else that's what the app is designed for <laughs> the app is primarily looks based app designed specifically on looks that's my partner there. We're getting... That's all right, don't <laughs> worry. I'll keep this in. <laughs> it's all good. But yeah, so so when it comes to that, that is true. Now, guess what? When it comes to also dating, it's also true too from a scientific perspective because our biggest sense is our eyes. So it is looks-based, but it's not the whole picture that they paint. It's not just aesthetics. It's behavior. The mm. behavior look of something directly correlates to whether or not you're attractive or not so if you Mm. go up to a woman and you look really nice i might do experiments if i can get this ethically the green light if you go up to a woman but you look really nervous and you're very attractive she's going to go what's going on here normally attractive people to me they are confident they are sure of themselves when you look nervous in society, you telegraph to society that you're hiding something. And society, based on how media works and the news and all that stuff, many people are going to go like, oh, there's something wrong with that guy. What if he takes out a gun? What if he does this? Oh, I got to be careful. I got to protect myself. I have to, you know what I mean? It's just common sense. So it makes sense that when you look at it through a scientific lens, a behavioral lens, yes, it is also looks, but it's also behavioral look. And it's also how the eyes correlate and merge with the other senses so the eyes are our biggest senses but the other senses they correlate to the eyes 
right? So when you smell something and your eyes, you get this mental vision too. So there's two types of vision that I talk about on my channel because I try to explain this. There's two types of vision. You have your physical vision, you have your mental vision, your thought images sort of, which relate to episodic memory, which relate to people who prior, who you've encountered prior or people who you've known about or your dreams or anything that relates to an image that you've seen or heard about through stories. So when you look at it that way, yes, dating is 100% looks, but a lot of it has to do with behavior look and they don't talk about behavior look. They only talk about the physical. They only talk mm. about the aesthetic. So your, your style, and then they only talk about your status and your money and how money is an influencer on status and, and looks very few people, even the, well, I guess dating coaches and the PUAs talk a little bit about it, but a lot of them don't talk about the behavior playing a huge role in attraction. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be doing studies on that. So mm -hmm. when it comes to looks, I, I agree. I think it's a hundred percent looks based in the beginning in terms of attracting someone. But a lot of that is behavior look. So your body language, what you do, even what you say to an extent, although it's not so much what you say, but how you say it plays a huge role. And then once you get attracted, then it's the attachment theory, it's neurosynchronization, which is a fancy term for saying our nervous systems synchronize and merge to the closest loved ones we have. And it's empathy. And the last hard science proven fact to love, desire, and attachment is positive delusion. There's one prominent person in the quote unquote manosphere, mate, which we're both probably aware of. And I've got to be careful what I say legally here, which is Andrew Tate. And oh. everyone <laughs> at the moment is very quick to criticize him and in a lot of cases, mm -hmm. rightfully so. However, what I don't see is this acknowledgement that he was filling a vacuum that drew a lot of young men in. And what I don't see is a conversation about how we reach those men and help them and not lump them in as his misogynist acolytes, shall we say. So how do we help those men? Great question. So one of my mentors, my biggest coaches, is friends with Andrew Tate. So here's the thing with Andrew Tate. He's a genius. He's a marketing genius. And a lot of what he said with the red pill is not what he truly is. A lot of what he says in the opposite of the red pill is what he truly is. Because he understands, like I just said prior, the best way to get an audience is to first empathize with an audience, is to first come on their side, to first show them that you you understand their pain, you understand what they're going through, you're here for them, and then you slowly change their perspective. Now, if you look at Andrew Tate's videos where he's talking about views on women and, and all that stuff in the manosphere part, yeah, again, from the outside, from the surface level, he looks like a raging misogynist. He looks like someone who hates women, all that stuff. And in the past, when his past actions with the, the sex trafficking allegations and the lover boy method, all that stuff could very well be true. But when you look at his newer stuff and what he's saying now, it seems like he's changed quite a bit. And it seems like when he talks and he's calm and collected, that's who the real Andrew Tate is. And that's coming from what my mentor said about Andrew Tate is that Andrew Tate learned a lot, grew a lot. He used his prior behavior to get an audience. And then he was trying to change it with the other side. And he was trying to make money at the same time. So he was trying to use it as a marketing tool and stuff like that. Cause he figured out how the algorithms work, which is basically any attention is good attention. 
and he probably in his mind where he screwed up, he probably thought that the good would outweigh the bad because mm. in his mind, he's thinking, well, my progress is going to outweigh the bad when he forgot the number one thing about the brain is we're more prone to negativity unless we've trained ourselves otherwise than we are to positivity. So people are more mm. prone to look at his negative stuff rather than look at the positive stuff because he goes on those men quite a bit. He's been recently since apparently, I guess he, he is, I don't know if he's Muslim or Arabic or something. Yeah. I was questioning that as well. That yeah. seemed a little bit part of the marketing too, which is a bit yeah. dark, but yeah. But yeah. But anyway, he was telling them, Hey, don't have sex all the time. Sex is not the end goal in life. Do something with yourself. He was battling a lot of the different manosphere viewpoints and the people that he was close with in the manosphere used their cognitive dissonance, used their confirmation bias and looked completely past what those things are saying. But when you see him in interviews, when you see him talk like that, he seems more down to earth. He seems more like he's okay. That's real Andrew Tate. And when you see him prior that's probably Andrew Tate from before, or that's probably Andrew Tate, the marketing genius that he was. Now, I'm not saying, is he a flawed individual? Hell yeah. Hell yeah, Andrew Tate's a flawed individual. I've yet to meet an individual who's not flawed, and I'm not trying to justify his past actions. Hell no, as someone who comes from a child sex trafficking background, if he did that shit, I would be very sad and very hurt. And I would even question why my mentor would be friends with him i don't know if he's friends to be fair i don't know since those allegation all that stuff if he's still friends with him i just know that they did podcast together he knows him well they were were buddies so with tate it's very difficult for me because of that friend connection and because of how he portrays himself and because of my acting background and knowing okay what's an act and what's mm. reality it's really difficult for me but i'd say mm. The new Andrew Tate is the Andrew Tate of now. The old Andrew Tates are the Andrew Tates of the past. Okay. Before we reflect on this part of your journey, mate, I want to just ask yeah. a final question because in the online conversation, when people label someone an incel now, everyone sort of seems to shrug their shoulders because the implication is it's okay because of their views on women and therefore they are a bad person, et cetera, et cetera. But when yeah. I was in school, I call it the term virgin baiting, basically. And it was one yeah. of the most powerful tools you could use in cussing matches, in deriding someone or trying to win an argument. If you knew that person, if you knew that boy specifically was a virgin. So why do you think this has now become almost normalized to do online? Because, well, if you look at society as a whole, some of the most criticized societal groups, it's normal for us to do that. It's almost like we want to discredit what everybody's saying. So we'll just go to that. That's the go-to. If you look at the time when gay people, for example, were criticized, ostracized, all that stuff, it was common to just call people, you know, oh, you're just gay or that's gay mm -hmm. or you're being gay. Stop it. Right now that common term is, oh, you're being an incel. Oh, you're just in, oh, you have that view. You're an incel. It's an easy way to discredit someone. It also, it's kind of like gaslighting. Gaslighting is the worst thing you can do to someone, especially if you do what real gaslighting is, which is a process which takes time and effort and energy. And you're basically essentially making someone crazy. But when you're calling someone an incel or when you're calling someone a racist or a misogynist, or when you're just using a one word, you're discrediting, you're trying to label them as something that's horrible to discredit all the points they've ever made. So you're gaslighting their point of view. 
And if you keep doing that over and over again, that person, whether they like it or not, because we're mostly subconscious beings, we do everything, I think, 85% subconsciously, we're going to take that in and we're it's going to affect us. It's going to make us question our sanity. It's going to make us say, hey, maybe I am an incel. Hey, maybe I am a misogynist. And I know this from experience, my own experience. Because when I try to help people like these groups, well, they would just criticize me. That's the first thing they'd go to is say, you're exactly like that. And I had to learn mm-hmm. to say, you know what? These people just don't want to understand. They want to have their blinders on. They don't want to do the work that it takes to understand. And yet they want others to understand them. They want others to be empathetic of them, to do the work it takes, to educate themselves on them and their plights. And it's like, well, that's a mutual thing. Empathy is a real equal tool because the whole point of empathizing with someone is so that they can empathize with you and that you guys can build a better communication. That's one of the cores of interpersonal relationship skills is before you even do anything, empathize with them, which is a dialectical behavior therapy teaching. And as a final question, what has this journey of advocacy and the channel taught you about yourself, mate? It's taught me that even though you're going to help others who have been kicked down so much by society, expect backlash from those others and expect backlash from even some of the closest people you've made connections with. And that was really hard for me. So when I left YouTube the first time with my channel with Black Pill Medicine, it's because I had a disagreement with one of the channels that started me. It was called Smash TV. I was doing good there. We were communicating i was helping people but then they disagreed with a few views of mine i lost my frame my psychological well not psychological but my coolness my temper came in my bpd sort of had a relapse there and then they blew my channel up because they found about the trans and all that stuff they were okay with that stuff before i criticized or before i got angry and then when i got angry then they said oh you know well you said those things and all those so That was the biggest lesson that it taught me is that you're going to get criticism from those individuals that you're trying to help. And you shouldn't let that stop you because other individuals are going to latch on to your help and they're going to value it. And those other individuals that criticized you, eventually it's that idea that your biggest haters, your biggest critics become your biggest fans because you keep plowing through and you keep listening to their criticisms while protecting yourself from like trash criticisms and you're improving and you're doing better. And that's the whole thing with self-improvement is that the challenge is the success. Overcoming the challenges and the problems that you face in life is the success. The success is not the reward. The success is the challenge because the challenges and how you overcome them make you better. And of course, you're going to get criticism from the other side. They're going to call you, you king of incels and all that stuff. We have come to our final topic of conversation, Matt, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests. It is a general natter and chat and quickfire chat about our mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health, mate? Right now, it's excellent. It's it's really good. Even though I'm going through some rough things in life, I did the work, right? And I know psychology and therapy and all that stuff. Right now, my mom's sadly dying, uh, congestive heart failure, and my wife does have cervical cancer. But we're hoping with the vasectomy, or not vasectomy, oh my god, hysterectomy, that that will be okay. But other than that, I'm just trucking along. It's the first time in life, actually, where I didn't let things like that fully affect me and stop me from doing what I wanted to do. 
So I felt a little crazy at first. Cause I'm like, wait, is, is that like a trait of a psychopath just to plow through <laughs> things like that? And then I was like, my friend's like, no, you were coping through it. You took your coping mechanisms and you were doing it and you were doing the work as you were going. So no. And what age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind? I was the age of five. I was very young because I started thinking of ending my life. And I said, well, wait, I don't think that other people think this way. Most people live past five. I, for some reason, I was very, I guess you could say thought smart. Like I was very, from what I remember, very intelligent in my thoughts, in my processes and in, in the transferring of thoughts, not so much. But I've always been very high in, in thinking and stuff like that. So around, yeah, age five, maybe eight, five to eight. So very young. And can you tell me also about the first conversation you have with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What impact did it have? And did it feel like on the one hand, a big burden or weight of lift off your shoulders? On the other, did it feel like something quite easy, insignificant and normal to do? It was with my mother. So my mother told me that she would fuck me up. So when I started feeling like... Oh, I wow. That was the first conversation. Up. Bloody hell. <laughs> well, no, not the first conversation. I'm saying I. she told me that. I started yeah. experiencing some what I would consider at that time fucked upness. I went to mm -hmm. her and that's how we sort of created a bond. She was very helpful in that regard. She helped me work through my thoughts and stuff like that too. And then it was with my grandparents as well. And what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health, mate? So it could be things people say to you, a sound being in a particular social environment, or have you not figured mm -hmm. all of them out yet? I don't know if I figured all of them out yet, but I'll say any type of disrespect for my children or any type of, uh, <laughs> that's a big one that I have to work on. Anything money related used to really trigger me, not so much anymore. So loss of money. I grew up in pure poverty, like Western poverty. So anything money that would trigger me, what used to trigger me, any types of threatening to leave me, threatening to ab abandon me, things like that. Specific situations used to trigger me as well. Like if I would go in a specific room and I'd have a specific OCD thought like if there was a knife on the counter i'd think of stabbing someone and then i'd have to go oh no cd thank you for well that's until that that went away but today's yeah today it's more family related because mm. now i finally truly ascended right but that's new stuff to me so now it's all family related any form of disrespect from anybody i should say triggers me being disrespectful calling me names things like that but I have now I put systems in place. So if, if my partner and I are having a heated debate, a name gets called, we put a pause on the conversation. We go our separate ways. We bring our emotions down. We come back and then we have a, a civil conversation. If it happens again, we do it again. If it ends up being a long <laughs> time, then it is what it is. But that's the best way to do it. You don't want to lash out at people that you love, right? And conversely, what positive tools do you use in your life to improve your mental health? Which ones have worked for you and which ones that you've tried but haven't? I write down my goals every day. And then once I write down my goals, I envision my goals. And same with my, my day. I'll, I'll write down my day goals. I'll envision them. I'll go for walks. I'll listen to books. I'm always listening, always learning, especially in psychology and, and stuff like that. Uh, it might surprise you that I'm an undergrad student. I'm not a, a <laughs> master's or a PhD uh, when it comes to mental health. But gratitude, grateful. Oh, my God. When you get up, be grateful for everything. Be grateful for the fact, even if you hate your job, be grateful for the fact you have a job. Be grateful for your family. Be grateful for even your critics because they're your biggest challenges and they help you improve in life. Gratitude goes a long way. And then when you have a disagreement with someone, empathy first. 
or when you can't understand something someone's doing to you, empathy first. Say to yourself, why are they doing what they're doing? What might be the, the thing that triggered them? And mm. if you can, still see a therapist. I still see one every now and then. Now it's more bouncing psychology ideas off of each other. But I still see one. And I do still like dialectical behavior therapy. And also listen to some self-help books. Listen to a lot of them tout the same concepts. That's What's what been the best say. one for you? My favorite ones recently is actually ironically Think and Grow Rich. I didn't think it would be some sign back, but I read an editor note one. And the editor notes one matches what Napoleon Hill was saying to what modern science is saying. So it was almost like he was ahead of his time. But some uh, another good ones, I like spiritual books. So Conversations with God by Neil Donald Walsh, another great book. For Men, Masculine and Relationship by J.S. Youngblood, probably one of the best relationship books you can read if you want to attract a feminine woman. And I guess if women want to attract a feminine man, masculine in relationships, good too. I'm not the type of person that believe women should be feminine, women should, men should be masculine. That's another mm -hmm. thing I get shit for all the time, even in the incel community. I believe that you should be who you want to be. And that, I think that's the thing. The best thing I can tell you is if you're suffering right now, ask yourself this. If I went on for five years doing the exact same thing over and over again, would I be worse off, better off? or content. And if it's content or worse, how can I improve? If it's better, how can I replicate? If there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health, Matt, what would it be and why? He was fucked up. Now he's better because he learned the knowledge, did the work, and he's giving back. And if you do that, I don't see how you can't be successful. And also the brain is 100% malleable. Don't allow others to try to keep you in what I call sedation. So not truly getting help. And as a final question, what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if, most importantly, they want to do it? Well, one, we have to stop looking at men and women as these cookie cutter things as like well this is what a masculine man is this is what a feminine man is no stop doing that look at people through the traits they possess and then say hey as someone who wants to live a meaningful happy healthy life do you want that trait yes or no do you want to be an angry person yes or no do you want to be a person that judges and criticizes yes or no do you want to be a person that views the opposite sex as an some object to be attained whether it's a sex object or a cash object Yes or no. When you start coming at it from this way, and when the mental health industry starts coming at it from this way, more people are going to be more inclined to get help. Because right now, a lot of it's the blind leading the blind, because most mental health practitioners haven't been through the level of, of trauma or experience. Some, some have, but not all of them. Many of them come from very sheltered backgrounds, very knowledgeable, very intelligent. They did the work to understand but they haven't really experienced. And I think the biggest teachings come from experience. You have to experience in order to truly help someone. And also there's an over-reliance right now on empathy in mental health. There's too much reliance on empathy, validating one's suffering and medicating. And that's what I think keeps people sedated. It's okay if a person is happy doing those things, if they're truly, truly happy, 
<laughs> that's fine. We shouldn't shame them and say, no, you need to be setting your 50,000 goals and you need to be doing 50,000 things and you need to be constantly improving. If that's not who they are, that's fine. Let them be. If they're happy and they love it, let them be. We don't need to be the way society wants everybody to be. Society will function properly if some people are simply content with going home, playing video games, going home, reading books. That's not me. That's probably not you to an extent. I don't know. I'm saying what if you're doing podcasts, you're doing a bunch of stuff all the time. Probably not you, right? But they are some people. But if there's an ince, like the little tiny bit of misery there, you have to deal with it because just that little bit is going to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. And that's what I meant by when I said, find where you are. Are you happy? Are you content? Or are you miserable? Because chances are, it's the universal law. It's called the law of spiral dynamics. You always spiral up, you spiral down. You're very rarely stagnant. And on that note, Matt Henry, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking yes. to you, mate. Oh, it was awesome. I had a great time. I hope, hopefully someone got something out of this. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In pod. A big thank you to Matt Henry for being my special guest on this episode and for letting me check in with him. You might have come into this episode with a particular viewpoint on incels or none at all, but this podcast is all about nuance. So I hope you've come away from it with something to think about. I'll put links to where you can subscribe to Matt's YouTube channel, Fixing Inceldom, in the show notes. And I'll sign us off by saying, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us further, you can go to our Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. Or you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe. Or you can buy a Vent t-shirt. Or you can buy a ticket to the next Just Checking In Live. That is Saturday, 5th of April, 2023 at the Victoria in Dalston. All those links are also available on our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash venthelpuk. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Okay.